or bringing to a conclusion a series that we have done over the past now three weeks as we've been talking about how to overcome a life of sin. And we have been looking at that through the lens of Jeremiah 2 because God has been expressing to the people the problem of their sin. And there's probably no better way to describe what they are doing except they are addicted to it and they will refuse to stop. In fact, we, we noted this as our key text as, as we've been looking at this chapter, that you have God saying, do not chase after other gods until your shoes wear out or your throats become dry. But you say, it is useless for you to try and stop me because I love those foreign gods and I want to pursue them. Uh, that really, I think, it gives a good capsulization of what kind of picture sin does to us is that it moves us to such a point that we feel like we can't stop. We just feel like we become so engrossed in it, so enslaved by it that we don't see how we're able to get out of that. And what God is doing is not only showing them how to be able to overcome this, but I think one of the important factors that we have been looking at in these lessons is showing if we could understand what sin does to us ultimately, it would hopefully wake us up and cause us to want to run the other direction. We wouldn't be so quick to be uh, accepting our temptations that come to us when we see all that is going to come from the consequences of living a life of sin. And so tonight, as this is the last lesson, at the very end, I'm going to take what is ultimately then all eight of these ideas and, and, and use that as our conclusion. But before we get to that, three more points that Jeremiah makes to the people that shows the problem of sin. You have your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 2. And, and I want you to notice in verse 29, Jeremiah 2, verse 29, Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravenous lion. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Once you see the first picture is God starts describing how stubborn these people are in their sins. He, he begins with a, with a question there in verse 29 when he says, now, why are you bringing charges against me? In essence, I have the reason to bring charges against you. You're the ones that have rebelled. You are the ones that have sinned. And yet, ironically enough, what the people are doing is not seeing their sins, but rather pointing to God and charging God and saying, God, you've done wrong. We haven't been the ones that are doing wrong, but you are. And I want you to see how incredulous God is to hear this, to hear the people contend with him and ultimately blame him. And, you know, if you slow down and think about that for, for a moment, that's in essence, I think, a, a problem that we have the tendency to go into and a problem that I think all people have the temptation to fall into is that we want to blame God for everything. The reason why everything's going so sour is because of God and, and the willingness to blame God. And sin can make us so stubborn to not listen to God saying, no, look at the decisions you're making. Look at how you are rebelling against the Lord. Look at how you are defying what he has told you to do and how you live your life. But it is so much easier 
to blame everybody else, isn't it? I mean, that's the essence of what they're doing here. Is the reason we're in this condition certainly can't be me. It's got to be everybody else. It's got to be God. If you only understood, and that's the essence of what happens if you talk to somebody or if you've ever been confronted by someone who lovingly wanted to help you be corrected or you've gone to someone and tried to help correct them in the path, how easy it is to immediately want to put the defenses up and say, you know, everyone else is at fault. God's at fault. My spouse is at fault. My friends are at fault. My, everybody that I know is that it's everybody else's fault. It's certainly not me. And I want you to hear God saying, do you, do you see how stubborn you are that you're not listening, that I'm trying to show you that it's you? And that's what you see in verse 29. You're going to bring charges against me. You're the ones that have rebelled. You are the ones that, that, that are in sin. And that's the essence of the problem. In fact, the stubbornness is pictured even, even more clearly in, in verse 30 when he says, In vain I punished your people and they did not respond to correction. All right, don't laugh too loud, but did you have a child like this? I'll say I did, but they're all three are here, so I won't say which ones. Yeah, <laughs> You have children go, and here's what's happening is God is saying, I'm trying to correct you and move you on the right path, but you're so stubborn, you won't go the right way. And that's if you've had that as a parent to a child and you're like, if you would just listen to what I'm telling you and stop being stubborn, we wouldn't have to keep going through this. But no, we're going to keep going through it and going through it and going through it. And you're trying to get them to not be stubborn, to open their eyes and listen and go the right path. And notice that God is having to say this to his people and say, you just need to listen in turn. Why won't you listen to, to the correction that I'm trying to give you? Can't you see that this sin is, is, is hurting you? And unfortunately, our rejection of God, we so often don't see how our sins are hurting us. We stubbornly resist. And here's God saying, I'm trying to correct you. Or if I could use this morning's lesson I'm trying to refine the impurities off of you. I'm trying to move you in that right direction. And sometimes what we want to do is rear up against that and go, I don't want to change. I'm not going to make any changes in my life. I'm going to stay stubborn. And so notice verse 30, he's saying, it was in vain that I did this. In vain, you can imagine this, this image. He sent them into Babylonian captivity and left them there and then brings them back to the land. And now he turns around and says, I don't even know why I did that. It didn't do any good. It was supposed to teach you. It was supposed to wake you up. It was supposed to cause you to be my people after you went through that hardship and difficulty. But in fact, it's ultimately been a waste. And sin makes us stubborn and makes us blind to seeing how God is at work and trying to move us in the right direction. And then you'll notice in verse 31 he illustrates their stubbornness again, where he says, have I been a desert to you or a land of great darkness? So here's God saying, have I been useless to you? Have I not blessed you? Have I not been a light to you? Have I not given you everything you needed? Have I not been your God? And then notice what it says the people did with those blessings and with that light and with that goodness. Middle of verse 31. So why do my people say we are free to roam and we will come to you no more? 
Here's God saying, I have been taking care of you. I have been providing for you. I have given you everything you need. I've blessed you. I've given you the direction. I've been a light. I have not been a wilderness to you. I've been a flowing fountain of blessings. And he says, and here's what you've done with all of the care and provisions and blessings that I've given to you. You've said, I'm going to go my own path and I'm going to go a whole nother way. He says there in verse 31, so why do you say, we will come to you no more? It's almost like saying, thank you for all the presents, thank you for all the gifts, but I don't care about you. I'm going to go my own way anyway. So again, you're getting the imagery of the stubbornness of sin. That when we get ourselves into sin, we stubbornly resist God. We don't see his blessings. We don't see how he's at work in his life. We refuse to listen to correction. We're unwilling to turn away. And what we end up doing is blaming God and everybody else for all of our problems. And he says, that's where you are. This is your situation. This is what sin does to us. And so he gives them this very first picture regarding the problem of sin. Second, I want you to notice that he says what sin does is it makes you forgetful. Look at this illustration in verse 32. He says, does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. I don't know. You can tell me afterward. But I don't know that any of us have ever been to a wedding where the bride showed up and said, I forgot my makeup and wedding dress. I'm going to be wearing a t-shirt and shorts today. I don't even know what to do. I can't believe I forgot the clothing that I was supposed to wear today. I don't think that message has ever rippled through the crowd. Can you believe the bride forgot the wedding dress? Oh, what are we going to do? And I want you to notice that's the illustration he uses. That's impossible. No bride is going to be there on their wedding day in shorts and a t-shirt forgetting everything that they need to be prepared for that moment. And now he uses that as an illustration here in verse 32. And he says, but here's the thing. My people have forgotten me. And I want you to know what he's saying is, as impossible as it ought to be for a bride to forget her makeup and jewelry and wedding gown, it should be impossible for us to forget God. It should be that impossible that God's people would forget God. Now, unfortunately, that's not the end of the picture. Did you notice how God continued that? He doesn't say, yet my people have forgot me, period. No, he says, yet my people have forgotten me, and I can't count how many days they've done it. (laughs) And as I read that, I thought, as stinging as that is, how true. As stinging as that is, how many days do we forget God? Do we forget to acknowledge him? Do we forget to talk to him? Do we forget to be thankful to him? Do we just simply go through our day and we just don't have anything to do with God in the slightest? Here is is, is God saying of his people, that should be impossible. It should be impossible for us to forget God, to not acknowledge him, to not thank him, to not talk to him, to not have a relationship with him, to not listen to him and, and, and follow him. Bad enough if, if it were just simply once, but to think that God could say of us, it is countless, countless days, days 
without number, that we have forgotten what, what he's done. What I want you to see in terms of sin, in may, it makes us forgetful, but I want you to see that what sin does is it makes us think of me and not him. That's ultimately the essence of what sin is. Sin in the moment is I'm not thinking about God. I don't care about God in that moment. I'm thinking about me. Thinking about what I want. I'm thinking about what I I think is best for me. It it is a, a selfish perspective. I'm doing what I want. I'm doing what I think is best. And therefore, I am completely forgetting God. This is the essence of what Peter is talking about in his second letter. When he starts talking about how God has given us Everything we need for life and godliness. And he starts talking about adding to your faith all of these various characteristics and virtues that they would be built upon one upon another. And then listen to what he says. He says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Notice that Peter's making the same point. Is that what happens with sin is it causes us to forget God. That's what we're doing. We are just simply forgetting God because he says... If these qualities were increasing in you, well, what would that mean? It means you are remembering God. You are not nearsighted. You are seeing God clearly and you are listening to and following him. But he's making an observation here is that if we're not adding to our faith and building upon these godly characteristics, he says, here's what this means. And I mean, three big statements. You're nearsighted. You're so nearsighted, it's as if you're blind. I won't get into that. That's me right there. I mean, literally, like physically, it's like negative eight in my eyes, like crazy. The biggie on the eye chart's blurry. That's why I have contact. You don't have context. I've got contact. I can't see a thing. He's saying you're so nearsighted. The way you look at life is so nearsighted that you're blind. Well, how'd you get there? Well, you forgot all everything that God's done for you. You know, you think about the people here in Jeremiah's day. They have forgotten everything that God has done for them. They have forgotten everything that God has accomplished. You think about all that he has done and where you sit in the timeline of of this prophecy. They would have even seen Israel taken away and all that's left is the southern kingdom. And they've seen that kind of scattering and exile. And here they are left. And how God has been gracious to them and merciful to them, never mind bringing them out of Egypt and slavery and putting them in the promised land and caring for them. He's saying, you have forgotten me and how could you possibly forget? And I don't know, just take a minute and just think about for this last year, how many times have we just forgotten God? How many times have we been so engrossed in our day? and engrossed in our lives and engrossed in our sins that we just don't even think about God in that moment. And what God is saying is an important remedy for sin is to be mindful of God, to not forget what God has ultimately done for us. And I hope that we would think of this this imagery when we are tempted. How could a bride ever forget her wedding garment? And how in this moment could I be turning my back and forgetting God? That's the image that God uses as the picture of what's happening.
And then number three, sin ultimately makes us live in denial. Look at verse 33, how skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Though you did not catch them breaking in, yet in spite of all of this, you say, I'm innocent. He is not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. (laughs) This is a, a fascinating point that God is making. It is very similar to what God had to make to the people in Malachi's day, where the people are saying, we haven't done anything wrong. Well, notice back here a couple hundred years earlier, the same thing is being said, is that the people are so ingrained in their sin, they don't even see it anymore. Notice that he says, the lifeblood of the innocent poor is on you, on your clothes. Murder. You've killed people is how bad things are in the days at this point. And then in spite of all of that, they're turning to God and saying, we didn't do anything wrong. And God's fine with it. God doesn't mind. God doesn't care. He will pass judgment. He says he is not angry, angry with me. And I think this is an amazing picture of what happens is that you become so ingrained in sin. We have an amazing way to then start justifying what we're doing. It's okay. It is amazing how sin operates that way. In fact, sin operates that way to such a degree that have you noticed that the first few times sin, you can might have a really guilty conscience about it and you feel very repentant and you turn to God. But if you keep grooving that rut, you don't even feel that way anymore. It doesn't even phase you anymore. It becomes something that is just almost routine now at this point. And he says here, it comes to such a point that you will live in denial of it. You won't even accept that you've sinned. You won't even see it anymore. It won't even come across your mind. Not only will you see that it's, it's something that's fine and you don't care, but he even then goes about saying in verse 35 by saying, and God's not going to be angry with me about it. We'll proclaim that God approves of our sins. As I read that, I thought it is staggering that we can have such a tendency to clearly break God's law and then live in denial that we didn't do anything wrong. Oh, no, you don't understand. And this is what Jeremiah is talking about. Now, I want you to catch something at the end of verse 35, because I think it is really important to note. In the middle of verse 35, 35, he says, but I will pass judgment on you, but I want you to notice the reason why. But I will pass judgment on you, Because you say, I have not sinned. Are you catch that? You probably would have thought it would have said, I'm going to pass judgment on you because you sinned. And God goes, no, 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 that's that's the given. I already knew that was going to happen. Here's the problem. The problem isn't so much the sin. The problem is the denial of it. That's what he puts his finger on. The whole issue is I'm going to judge you because you refuse to admit what you've done. In fact, you think about why that's so important. If we don't admit what we've done, if we keep denying our sins, repentance is impossible. We're coming before God saying, no, no, I'm fine. You don't understand. I'm doing just fine. Yeah, I know I've got all these sins, but it's okay. I'm in denial of all the things that I'm doing wrong. And here's God trying to show us our sins. And here we are justifying it. Oh, it's fine. 
You know, it's not hurting me. It's not hurting anybody. Everybody's okay. And I want you to see this picture that's that's given to us here is that denying our sin is what makes repentance impossible. You ever wonder why God talks about why we need to confess our sins? I mean, why is that step in the process? You know, just just jump to repentance, right? Well, here's the problem. If you, if you don't admit what you're doing, you're never going to seek repentance. You're never going to turn. This is what God's saying is the problem is you're in such denial about your sin. You won't even admit it. And if you don't admit it, you can't turn. And all we live in a time where it's so easy. Just we're just going to deny our sins. We're not doing anything wrong. We certainly haven't done that. And I want you to you might as you think about this, you might be thinking about how the Apostle John said that two different ways. The Apostle John really wanted to drive that point home. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we at all think, you know, I'm doing great. (laughs) He says, you are fooling yourself. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The, the importance of confession, the importance of not denying what we've done. And you'll notice in all three of these points, a lot of this has to do with blaming others, stubbornly staying in our sins and saying, I haven't done anything wrong and it's really everybody else's problem. And here's God saying, if that is our mentality, if we're unwilling to say, I have done wrong, I have sinned, I need to repent, I need to get right with God. Here's God saying, I'm going to pass judgment on you. And I think sometimes we fail to catch the importance of that is that the condemnation isn't really so much the problem of sin, but the problem of the denial of the sin. Because God says he'll forgive if we're honestly coming back to him sincerely. But how often it is really this picture in verse 35 where we say, I am innocent. And a life of sin that ultimately blinds us from seeing that truth. So what I want to do now, as I said, is I want to pull... All eight of these together that we've covered over the last three weeks. And I hope that as we move into 2024, we can use these as really useful tools to help us in our fight against sin. And that you would think about the areas where you are struggling, where faith is weak, where temptation is rising up. And you would use some of these things that Jeremiah has talked about to the people as key points To remind us why we need to get away from sin and run from temptation and run toward God. Number one, this one was probably one of the hardest ones that Jeremiah hit right out of the gate in the beginning of chapter two. Where God said, you have run to worthless things and made yourself worthless. And we talked about, well, what makes something worthless? Except it doesn't carry out its purpose anymore. When do you get rid of something in your life? You have some object because it no longer does what it's supposed to do and here is a picture of God saying you aren't fulfilling the purpose that I've created you for you were made in the image of God you are supposed to reflect God to the world you're supposed to be salt you're supposed to be light and when we chase after sin and we chase after worthless things God says you can no longer be the instrument that I'm using in the world We're nullifying our purpose. And I hope this will be a huge point to us 
When we throw ourselves into a life of sin and we allow ourselves to be captured by that, we are throwing our purpose away. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are supposed to be lights to the world. And if we are steeped in sin, that becomes impossible for us to carry out our purpose. Number two, the second big picture he gave is when you choose sin... You're choosing worthlessness instead of glory. He used a lot of different ways to picture that. But the one that was he, he really zeroed in on there was back in verse 13 when he said, Here you have God giving you the satisfying, flowing, cool, living waters. And you're trading that away for digging in a rock a hole that can't catch water and saying you're going to drink out of that instead. That was that was his image. You, you're building broken cisterns, is his idea. That we would see that what we are doing in our sin is we are throwing away the satisfaction that God is trying to give us for this life for empty, vain things. There's not a single sin that has long-term satisfaction and pays off the way we think it's going to pay off. And so that's what God is saying is number two, In overcoming sins, would you see that sin is exchanging the glory of God for worthlessness? It is a life of emptiness rather than a life of satisfaction and joy. Number three, a life of sin is a life of slavery. We can't understate how true this is. The New Testament's filled with the pictures of sin is slavery. You are empowering your flesh to be in charge. And that can get to such a point where your mind says, I don't want to do that, but the flesh is winning the battle anyway. It is so devastating to give yourself over to a life of sin so that now you are enslaved. In fact, that was the wording of the people there in verse 25 when they said, It is no use. We have to run after our idols. They're saying we're so captured by our sins. We can't break free. We've tried and it's no use. There could be nothing sadder but to enslave yourself to your own passions and your own desires that you get to such a point that you can't stop. And yet sin is that very thing. It does that very thing to us that we will be dominated by our desires and be dominated by sin. And in doing so, we're ultimately unable to enjoy the life that God wants us to have because we're so captured by these things. Number four, he tells us that sin stains. Satan's big lie to us is that there will be never consequences for your sin. You won't have to pay off anything from the sins you're committing. You're going to get away with it and no one will ever know. And friends, the, the, the truth of the matter is that there is consequence to sin. There is pain to sin. And sometimes those consequences and those pains and those sufferings can last the rest of your life. You can absolutely be forgiven of your sins, but sometimes those stains remain and those stains hurt. And those stains change everything about the direction of your life. And I know there are so many people here who could say, 
there were these certain decisions that I made. And if I had made, because I made this right decision, it kept me from all of that trouble. Or I made this wrong decision. And that's why I have all these difficulties. That's what sin does to us. And so often we look at sin and think, it's going to be fine. No one's going to know. No consequence. That's what Satan lies to us. It's going to be great. Remember, that's the first lie in the garden. Satan telling Eve, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. God's holding out on you. This is going to be wonderful. And God's trying to say, there's going to be a stain. You are going to live with the consequences of sin. And that ties very closely to the fifth point that we saw in Jeremiah 2. Shame. No one's getting away with their sins. And there is great shame that comes from living a life of sin. And I used an illustration that we probably all know people who have been caught up in sin and the shame of it still remains. As much as they are forgiven and maybe they're right with God again, and I pray they are. Sometimes what's the first thing you think about? This shameful thing that was done. And there is a shaming aspect that comes to sin. In fact, I'm hoping, Lord willing, we're going to talk about why in some ways shame is good before sin to move us away from it. But here you see the problem is when we've committed sin, the shame can can remain and we are forever given that very stay. Number six, this is where we were tonight. Sin makes us stubborn. What God is trying to do is correct us and move us in the right way. And so often what we're doing is we are unwilling to listen. Hope we would hear this. God is doing everything he can to lead us to eternal life. And what we often do is stubbornly resist everything that he's trying to do so that we can stay in our sinful ways. Don't let 2024 be that way. Don't be stubborn in your sin, but listen to what God is trying to do to move you in the right direction. Which means to number seven, sin makes us forget God and makes us forget all that he has done. It blinds us, it clouds our judgment. We fail to see the beauty of God. We fail to see all the good that he's done for us. And so we become angry with God rather than grateful. And then finally, sin makes us live in denial. We think we're not doing anything wrong. We justify ourselves. And at the end of the day, God says, I'll have to bring judgment because you will not see the sin that you've done. Now, look at all those. And if I were to, I think if God were to do this to the people of of Judah in the days of, of, of Jeremiah, and you stood before the people and said, all right, does this sound like a good plan for your life to do all these things? Here here is everything that sin does to you. Here's God trying to say, here's what sin ultimately causes. Why would you choose that? Look at all of the consequences. Look at all of the effects. Look at the good you're trading away. Look at all the pain that you're accepting. Look at all the problems that come and all the consequences and all that you're throwing away for all eternity. Why would we want to go this path? And I hope the weight of this will help us as we come into the new year is to see when those temptations arise, we have the power to say no to sin. We have the power to see that this is not the right way for us to go. And it's not going to give us what we need, but rather it's going to lead to all of these things that God has promised will happen because we've made that choice. Let's go to God in prayer tonight. Our Heavenly Father. 
Lord, it is weighty to think about how you spoke to your people about the consequences of sin. And as you tried to warn them, as you tried to wake them up and help them to see the foolishness of the direction that they were going. And sadly, as you read through the book of Jeremiah, we learn that they did not listen and they did not turn. Lord, I pray that we would have soft hearts. And that we would hear what you are telling us about the weight of sin. Help us to understand the gravity of it. Lord, help us to not take sin lightly. Help us to not be near it. Help us to not think that we're getting away with it. And Lord, I pray that you would truly help us to see what we're doing to ourselves when we give ourselves to a life of sin. Help us to see the spiritual damage that we're doing to ourselves. Help us to see the damage that we are doing to our families, to our friends, to those who are close to us. Lord, help us to even see that our sins affect people that we don't even know. And Lord, help that to change our ways. Help us to see that you have made us in your image. And you want us to live for you. And help us to see that every word that you have given us is so that we can have a good life. And more importantly, that every word you've given us is so that we can have true life with you one day. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Help us to come before you with open hands. We do not deny our sins, but we confess them that we are frail and weak and sinful. Lord, we are so unworthy. We are so unworthy of your forgiveness. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for sending him to this earth and living a perfect life and showing us your ways and showing us who you are. And thank you for sending him to give his life so that we could be forgiven of the terrible things that we have done in our lives and the ways that we have rebelled against you. Lord, forgive us for when we've blamed you. Forgive us for when we've blamed others. Forgive us for when we have not been accountable for our sins. Forgive us for our denial. Lord, I pray for this new year, we would be open and honest about our sins and that we would quickly take these things to you and help us to not live in denial, but to truly put all of the cares and put all of our weight upon you because we know that you're a loving, forgiving God. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to the Lord tonight. And Our invitation is clear. Turn from a life of sin before it's too late. It's not worth it. It is not worth what Satan says it is worth. Please make that decision today before it's too late. We'd love to help you do that. Can we help you now? Won't you come now while we stand and while we